Once again, good uh, evening and welcome to uh, our commemoration of our Lord and Savior and what he did in Calvary's cross for us. Just uh, to remind you, in case you don't know, uh, our Resurrection Sunday services will be 8.30 and 10.30 like usual. So I'd love to have you come out as we celebrate the resurrection. But right now, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and let's read verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. I can't think of any two verses anywhere in the scriptures that succinctly and poignantly sum up the message of Good Friday and the cross as those two out of Isaiah 53. It's what the theologians call penal substitution which is what the, the gospel is built on. Penal means punishment. The gospel is all about a substitute being punished in our place. Of course, his name is Jesus. Now, we know from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And since sinners can't die for sinners... It would take the innocent dying for the guilty to make atonement for our sins. And yet, everyone born into this world is a descendant of Adam. And as such, born with sin on their soul, resulting in physical and spiritual death. Even as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam, all die. For someone to die for sinners... For someone to redeem us, first of all, they would have to be a member of the human race. That's what the whole book of, of Ruth is about. Uh, they would have to be a kinsman redeemer. Jesus had to be one of us to die for our sins. Since a man blew it in the garden, we, there had to be a man who would redeem us. The problem is, Anyone born into this world naturally is born in Adam. Of course, they're born with original sin on their soul, the fallen sin nature. So that presented a problem for God. Oh. <laughs> Don't you love it? There is no problems for our God. But since sin is passed down from the father to the children... This Redeemer would have to be born of a human woman, but have no earthly father. And of course, that's why the virgin birth was necessary. Now, folks, that explains the theology behind why Jesus came to redeem us. But was that the only reason God sent his son? Just the stark, cold, hard theological facts? Was that all that moved God in sending his son? I mean, what really motivated the father to send Jesus to die for us? And by that, 
matter, what, why did Jesus willingly submit to dying in our place? Of course, the answer is because of love. The title of this message, because of love. And of course, the love I'm talking about is God's love, which is vastly different from our human love, isn't it? First of all, as we seek to um, uh, define or understand God's love in a deeper way, let me just first of all say that in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, there are four words for love, although only two of them actually appear in the New Testament. There is first of all the Greek word eros, from which we get our English words erotic and erogenous. This is a word that better represents the idea of lust and is really more about the biological act of sex than love. And this word does not occur anywhere in the New Testament. The second Greek word for love is the word storge. That's a special Greek word for love that speaks of family love, like a mother's love for her child. Very deep, very special love, and the Greeks had a word that they develop for that kind of love, storge. That also, though, is a word that doesn't appear in the New Testament. And then there is the word phileo, which means affection, friendship, brotherly love, in the sense of reciprocal love. And finally, and by the way, that word phileo does appear many times in the New Testament. And finally, there is the Greek word agape, And this is a Greek word that represents a powerful, all-consuming kind of love. Now, we must be careful here, because I've heard pastors say that the New Testament church didn't have a word in the Greek that they could use to describe God's love. It was so unique. So they invented one, agape. They invented that word, I've been told, to specifically talk about this unique love, the love of God, and it's only used in the New Testament to speak of God's love. And yet Jesus said in Luke eleven forty three, 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love, the verb form of agape, you agapao, the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees were consumed by a love of prestige and the praise and recognition of men. And that's why they agaped the chief seats and all the greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, rabbi, rabbi, they love that. It means my great one, my great teacher. They love that. They were consumed with that desire for praise and recognition and so on. So the word is not a holy word. Uh, in that sense. It's not used exclusively of God's love in the New Testament. However, it is true that by far the most common use of the word agape in the New Testament is in connection with God's love, which is an all-consuming love characterized by selflessness and sacrifice. Selflessness and sacrifice. If you don't know it, turn to it, John three sixteen. right? which says, for God so loved the world, agape, that he, what? Gave. That he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. That is the love of God in operation. An all-consuming, selfless love. And again, God's love is all-encompassing. It's unconditional love. And it loves freely regardless of how that love is returned, if returned at all. God's love flows in one direction, from him down. It's not dependent on any love from us flowing up. It's God's nature to love. And he keeps loving and loving and loving regardless if he's loved in return. That's his nature. Now that's different from human love, of course, which is reciprocal. In other words, I love you because you love me. I love you because you love me. And conditional. But I only love you when you treat me right. That's human love. God's love is not like human love. God's love is unconditional, it's universal, and it's undiscriminating. As the scriptures say, God so loves the people of this world, and he is no respecter of persons, which means he loves everyone the same. Human love is limited and can diminish over time. Jesus said that during the tribulation period, Matthew 24, 12, the love of many will grow cold. But God's love never diminishes because God is the source of love and God himself never diminishes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. It's called the immutability of God. Human love loves, loves its own, those closest to it. God's love loves even his enemies. Turn to Matthew 5. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, giving us a command based on God's love. Matthew 5.44 But I say to you, speaking to his disciples, love your enemies. Verse 45 In that way you will, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and to the good, to his enemies and to his children. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. So, guys, Jesus commands his followers to love even our enemies with the love of God. But here's the problem with that. God's love is a supernatural love. It's a supernatural love. It's not inherent to our human nature. In other words, it's not of this earth. And as such, it can't be manufactured through the energy of our flesh. In other words, by working hard and self-effort, we cannot produce God's love. This love is only found in God himself, whom the Bible says doesn't just contain a great amount of love. 1 John 4, 8 says God himself is love. And so the only way for agape love, God's love, to fill our hearts is for God to fill our hearts. And the only way for that to happen is when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, 
when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. When we are born again, born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God moves in. And at that point, He pours the love of God, agape love, into us. Romans 5, verse 5 tells us that, right? The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In Galatians 5, 22, Paul said that once God's love has been planted in our hearts at salvation, it then becomes a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But for the fruit of love to really grow in our lives, we need to abide in Christ on a daily basis. Turn to John 15. The famous I am the vine discourse. Jesus said in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now, if you're not sure what the fruit is he's talking about, jump down to verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Same thing, abiding in him, in the vine. It's abiding in his love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So in these verses, guys, Jesus tells us that God's love is a fruit that grows in our lives as a byproduct of our union with him, with Jesus, which happens at the moment of salvation. We're connected to him. We are made one with him. As we said, agape love comes from God and only from God. It is planted in our heart at the moment of salvation and becomes a supernatural testimony to the presence of God within all of his children. The more we remain connected to Jesus in daily fellowship, communion, which is what abiding in him is all about, the more God's love grows in our lives in a kind of a supernaturally natural way, just by virtue of us staying close to Jesus, staying in communion with him. The fruit of the Spirit, not just love, but all the fruit of the Spirit will grow naturally in our lives. But understand... The whole purpose of God filling us with his love is so that it would be manifested in our lives, listen, to benefit others. Think about that. I mean, the whole purpose of a, fig, of a fruit tree is to bear fruit for others to benefit from. Look at John 13, verse 34. Now, this is the night before the cross. In the upper room, as Jesus was now with his closest men, giving them one last teaching before the cross. And he says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love, agape, 
one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. Look, the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples, which would include all of us, in the new covenant wasn't simply to love people. That was nothing new. The Old Testament was, was full of, or is full of commandments and exhortations to love others. I mean, give you one example, Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that wasn't new. A new commandment I have given to you, or I'm giving to you, that you love one another. Nothing new about that. God commanded people to love others, his people in the Old Covenant. What makes this command new? Well, Jesus went on to say, you're to love one another as I have loved you. That's what was new. You are to love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? How did, did Jesus love us? By going to the cross and dying for us and guys that's how he wants us to love one another by going to the cross and dying not literally of course but figuratively for one another that's what that's what's new about his command to love and how he gave his church something new in the way of loving others and guys he went on to say in verse 35 of john 13 that's how unbelievers would know that we are truly the children of God. He said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love, agape, for one another. Look, loving people as you love yourself, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. That's Old Testament love, though. Again, nothing new about that. Loving people as you love yourself implies placing them on an equal footing with yourself. And that's good. But loving them as Jesus means to place them above yourself by dying to your needs and making their needs supreme. Guys, that is the greatest kind of love. The love of God. Sacrificial love manifested in the lives of his people. He said in John 15, verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's sacrificial love. Now we must understand that God's love is not a feeling. It's a selfless action towards others in need. Again, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. Didn't say that God so loved the world that he felt bad for us. You know? A oh, tough break. I, I really had a high hopes for you guys. You know, I mean, well, uh, you know, take care. I'm going to go over to, you know, the next galaxy and make another planet and try again. Maybe those folks will obey. I, you know, that wasn't it at all. Okay. God so loved the world that he did something when we blew it. He gave his only begotten son. And that's why there is nothing more powerful, nothing that is greater 
a greater witness to the people of this world and God's love flowing through the lives of his people. Because the world doesn't know of this kind of love. The, the world, I'm not saying that there's no love in the world. There is. But not like this. There's nothing more powerful, nothing greater as a witness to the people of this world than God's love flowing through the lives of his people. And that's what Paul the Apostle said to end 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then move into chapter 13. He called God's love the more excellent way. And he said that in the context of spiritual gifts. That agape love is better than speaking in tongues, he said. It's better than healing the sick. In fact, God's love is even better than raising the dead because all those things only are only beneficial in this life. And while the exercise of these gifts can be exciting and emotionally moving for a time, God's love can soften the hardest heart and change a person for eternity. I remember hearing a story years ago and I forgot where it took place, but there was civil unrest in this country. And Christians were bearing a big, a, a lot of it. And so one day this Christian family had their home, the door smashed down, and some of these guerrilla uh, soldiers came bursting in with their machine guns. Well, this little girl, uh, one of the members of the family, I think she was about seven or eight, she dove under the bed. And these guerrillas, uh, soldiers, uh, mowed down her entire family. She was able to peek out for just a second and saw the face of the leader. They didn't see her, and so she escaped and grew up to be a very dynamic woman of God. Sometime after that, several years later, uh, this man was captured and stood trial and went to prison for war crimes. When this girl found out about it, now she's, I don't know, 17 or 18, she wrote him a long letter telling him who she was, that she was there the day that he and his soldiers broke into their house and killed her entire family. She escaped by hiding under the bed. And she told him that because she is a Christian and because God had forgiven her her sins, she was forgiving him for what he had done to her family. And she included a Bible. At first, he was so hardened that he, he, he didn't even crack the Bible. But the letter haunted him. You can't be neutral in the face of agape love, Okay. Either you run from it or you run toward it, but you can't be ambivalent. You can't be neutral. And it began to work on him. And eventually he opened the Bible, read a few passages here and there. Then later on he would read a little long, longer until finally one day he got saved. Her love transformed him for eternity. The love of God. When Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, many uh, people can't comprehend doing that because, again, the only reference most people have with regard to love is human love. And human love is often based on feelings, right? And so when people hear 
And maybe for the first time that Jesus has said that we are to love our enemies, they immediately respond, how can I love my enemies? What they're saying is, how can I have feelings for my enemies? Well, you probably can't. But God's love isn't about feelings. In 1 Corinthians 13, why don't you turn there? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul went on to give us the best description of God's love you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, in the entire Bible. But I want you to notice as you read this, he talks about love using all verbs. All verbs. Because God's love is not feelings, it's actions. Let me read to you out of the NLT 2. 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 4. Paul said, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But love, God's love, will last forever. Now, there are those, when we talk about God's love as Christians, there are those that, I guess in an attempt to diminish God's love and elevate human love, they will uh, point out that human love can be very selfless and powerful. I heard a story one time, true story, going back about five years, of uh, how that uh, there was a group of soldiers in uh, Afghanistan, I think it was, in a foxhole, when an enemy lobbed in a grenade. One of the soldiers saw that grenade land in the foxhole, immediately jumped on it, dived on it, and caused his body to absorb the blast, killing him instantly, but sparing his, his buddies. People point to that and go, well, you're telling me that human love can't be a powerful thing? No, I'm not saying it can't be a powerful thing. And certainly, I mean, anyone who would die for his friends, that's commendable, no doubt about it. But God loves his enemies. Jesus died for his enemies. Turn to Romans 5. And let's read verses 6 to 8. Romans 5, verse 6, Paul said, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, while we were yet his enemies. Many years ago, when I first got into ministry, this is going way back, okay? And uh, at that time, there was a, um, a roller rink in the area. 
And uh, I think it was once a month they had a Christian skate. And we had a bunch of folks that would go, and we had a good time. And Well, they, this particular year, they decided to have a Christian skate on New Year's Eve. And they wanted to ring in the new year with communion. So if somehow they got a hold of me. They, they found out uh, who I was, and they called me and said, Pastor, would you come down here and, uh, you know, around midnight uh, say a few words uh, about communion and then lead us in prayer and, and, uh, and, and pass out communion and as we bring in the new year? And so I said, I'd, I'd be honored to. So I went down there, and in the course of the little talk I gave before we actually celebrated communion, I made the point, as I look back, I don't make this point anymore, but uh, I made the point that Jesus is the best friend you're ever going to have. What friend of yours would die for you? That was my brilliant logic, okay? Well, I walked into that one. Because afterward, a young guy came up wanted to talk to me. Now, he told me his name was Vince, and true story, said that he was in a gang. And he said, every one of my friends in this gang would die for me, and I would die for them. So, you know, your illustration or your example of Jesus being a friend and the only best friend you could ever have that alone would die for you, that's not true. My friends would die for me, and I would die for them. That's how close we are. Now, guys, I was a young pastor, okay? I, I honestly didn't know how to come back to that. I, I didn't know what to say. And it took me back a little bit. So on the way home, literally, I prayed, and I asked the Lord, Lord, what about this? What, what about this? You know those times when God speaks to you, not audibly, but pretty clearly? I'm asking the Lord in all sincerity, Lord... What about this? I mean, he says his, his friends would die for him. How do I respond to that? The Lord very clearly said to me, Phil, I didn't die for my friends. I died for my enemies. That's the love of God. See, as we try to understand God's love, often our frame of reference is trying to understand God's love in the light of human love. That's where we make our big mistake, right? Human love often needs to be earned because it's often, unfortunately, performance-based. As when a parent um, lays conditions on their children that those children have to meet if the parent is really going to love them. They have to perform, and maybe the father is, a, a, is an athlete, and uh, one of his sons is great in athletics, and the other one, you know, the other son, uh, he's not into sports at all. And how the father naturally gravitates to the kid who is athletic and, and can't pour enough praise onto this child where the other one seems like an embarrassment. Unfortunately, there are too many earthly parents who uh, base their love on their children's performance. There's conditions attached to it. And the problem is that many Christians then bring that concept of love into their relationship with God and begin to think that God's love needs to be earned as well. This causes many to think that God doesn't love them because, listen, they have failed so badly in life and therefore haven't earned 
his love. So how could God ever love them? Of course, this, the devil uses that to keep them away from the Lord, right? Whenever somebody asks me that question, how could God love me? I have failed so miserably. I say, how can he love you? Because it doesn't depend on you. It's his nature to love. And to love unconditionally, regardless of how much we fail and blow it and don't deserve it. Guys, that is the whole message of Good Friday and the cross, isn't it? That God so loved a world of sinners, failures, losers, and reprobates that he sent his only begotten son to die for them, all because of love. Look, if God commands us to love even our enemies, how much more so should we love our spouses, our children, our earthly families, and our families in Christ? <laughs> Some would say, well, now you're asking a lot. I, I don't know if even God has got enough love for me to love the people in my life. One of the greatest hymns ever written on the subject of God's love was written by Frederick M. Lehman in 1917 and is simply called The Love of God. Let me read it to you. It goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. When years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. That's beautiful, isn't it? My favorite verse or my favorite stanza was not original to the composition. The final stanza was added later after it had been found scratched on the wall of a cell in an asylum by a man said to have been insane. They found the first part and then he added a little addendum, another little stanza, which happens to be my favorite. It goes like this, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. That guy doesn't sound crazy to me. <laughs> Maybe he was considered crazy for simply being a follower of Christ. That's possible. Hey, look, don't worry about what the world thinks of you when you demonstrate God's love. They may call you crazy. You know what God calls you? Sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Look, I really don't know who has hurt you in life. I have met people over the years that have been deeply and profoundly hurt. Young women who 
had been abused sexually by their fathers for years. Uh, things I, I don't even want to repeat. And so I'm not minimizing anything that you've gone through. I, I, I'm not trying to, to, to make it sound like it was no big deal. But I do know this. Whatever it is, and how ever or how much you've been hurt, forgiveness is necessary. I know some would immediately respond, how can I? Why should I? Because of love. God's love for you that forgave you and now commands you to forgive those who have hurt you. I'll close with an article that I think illustrates my point. It goes like this, and I quote, In her Holocaust memoir, The Hiding Place, Corey Tenboom tells how she and her family resisted the Nazis by hiding Jews in their home. They were ultimately discovered and sent to a concentration camp. Corey barely survived until the end of the war. Her family members died in captivity. On one occasion in 1947, while speaking, excuse me, let me back up, seared by this terrible trial by fire, Corey's faith in God also survived, and she spent much of her time in the post-war years traveling in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, sharing her faith in Christ. On one occasion in 1947, while speaking in a church in Munich, she noticed a balding man uh, in a gray overcoat near the rear of the basement room. She had been speaking on the subject of God's forgiveness, but her heart froze within her when she recognized the man. She could picture him as she had seen him so many times before in his blue Nazi uniform with his visored cap, the cruelest of the guards at the Ravensbrück camp where Corey had suffered the most horrible indignities and where her own sister Betsy had died. Yet here he was at the end of her talk coming up the aisle toward her with his hand thrust out. Thank you for your fine message, he said. How wonderful it is to know that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Well, yeah, Corey had said that. She had spoken so easily of God's forgiveness, but here was a man whom she desperately, and uh, who, there, here was a man whom she despised and condemned with every fiber of her being. She couldn't take his hand. She couldn't extend forgiveness to this Nazi oppressor. She realized that this man didn't remember her. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? You mentioned Ravensbrook, the man continued, his hand still extended. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It has been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did, but I know that God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips, too, that God has forgiven me. And Corey recorded her response in her book. She said, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. It could, have been, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, 
it seemed like hours, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. She said, for a moment we grasped, for a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, end quote. Did Corey feel like forgiving this man? No. But she did it out of obedience to God. And then the feelings came. If you wait to feel like obeying God before you do it, you probably won't obey him very often. But you see, in the kingdom of God, obedience always precedes feelings. You will never know the fullness. And we're done. But you'll never know the fullness of God in your life as a Christian until you forgive those who have wronged you. That is the message of Good Friday. That is the message of the cross. And that's the message you must take with you from tonight. That through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, God forgave you your sins against him. And now he commands you to forgive those who have sinned against you. Why? Because of love. Because of love. May God give us grace to be channels of his divine love to this fallen, hurting world. I'm not excusing the hurt that others inflict on others, maybe have inflicted on you. Oftentimes, people lash out and hurt others because they themselves have been deeply hurt when they were little. Or I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that's often the case. And what people desperately need is to know that God loves them, regardless of how they've lived, regardless of how little they deserve it. God loves them. And we are his hands, his feet, his mouth. We are his body on the earth, called by Jesus Christ to wrap our arms around a hurting world and to tell them from experience, God loves you. And he proved it 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May God give us grace to be instruments of his love. This is a hurting, fallen world. Yes, it's full of evil. Yes, it's full of injustice. But there's a God in heaven who is real and who loves the people of this world so much so that he sent his son to die for them. 
And may God give us the grace to properly communicate that love to those around us. Father, we thank you for the great love wherewith you loved us in sending your Son to die for us while we're yet sinners. Thank you, Lord. And now that you have given to us new life and have poured your love into our hearts, and by the way, we know, Lord, that even though you've poured your agape love into our hearts, we don't have to draw from it. We can be selfish. We can be carnal. We don't have to love people with your love. It's there if we want to access it by your grace. It's there for us to use. But it depends on whether or not we're going to die to self and put the needs of others above our own or whether we're going to be selfish and go on living for our own lives and our own self. Give us grace, Lord, to die to self that we might be instruments of your love to this fallen world. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless this weekend as we meditate on all that it means and that you would then pour your spirit out upon our services Sunday morning as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.